The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll talk about the Game of Thrones premiere and the state of dramas at HBO. Plus, Alan Seppenwald joins Matt to talk season two of Better Call Saul. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. And we also have two special guests with us this week, Vulture Game of Thrones expert Nate Jones. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Nate. Going Going well. And we have Vulture West Coast editor Joe Adalian with us as well. Joe, it's so good to have you back. Uh, Good to be there, sort of, (laughs) kind of, by Game of Thrones like magic. (laughs) <laughs> I, when I take this bracelet off, you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> so, Joe, you you recently wrote a piece about uh, kind of the state of drama at HBO and what vinyl tells us about the kind of predicament they're in a little bit with their drama slate. Uh, vinyl was such a huge production for the network. It was their Martin Scorsese Terrence Winter show set in the 1970s music scene in New York, and it didn't really take off. And I was wondering if you could just give us a little framework of of what's going on and what their replacement of Terrence Winter as showrunner of vinyl means for the network. Well, sure. I mean, you know, the thing that was interesting is that HBO took such definitive action uh, against somebody, not against, but uh, involving somebody um, who was, you know, sort of a, a fixture within the network uh, between Sopranos, uh, where he was an executive producer for several years, and, and, and of course, Boardwalk Empire, which he created. And it showed me that they wanted to try to save the show because they sort of need to save the show. I mean, no show on HBO other than Game of Thrones is all important. Um, no show could go away and HBO suddenly you would think it could make a big difference to their profits, which are enormous. But, uh, you know, they've had a problem developing hit dramas over the last couple of years since Game of Thrones, really. And so to me, the fact that they're willing to sort of not just sort of muddle along and hope it gets better, but are actually making a big decisive change says to me that they really want the show to work. What do you know about the behind the scenes sort of reason? Because, you know, there's a lot of people in the greater sort of orbit of HBO that Terrence Winter is tight with. Like, it's, yeah. politically, this is like, this is kind of a big deal. Obviously, it must be an incredibly expensive show because it's a period show. Did they say, like, this show is so freaking expensive, we have to do something to save it? I think there's a whole bunch of that. I mean, yeah, it is expensive. The pilot cost roughly $30 million to make, according to uh, widespread reports and things that I've heard from agents as well. Um, you know, a lot of that is music clearances. Uh, but one of the reasons why this show was given a two-season order and why so many big HBO shows get a two-season order is because they need to amortize the cost of that, of the, of the the you know, to create that world of vinyl and, and everyone involved. You know, you need to have um, two seasons to sort of in 20 episodes to sort of spread the cost of that 30 million pilot out over the course of 20 episodes. 
in terms of the politics of it all, I don't have too much inside information except, you know, unconfirmed sources have told me that that HBO may have tried to move against uh, Winter earlier, but Scorsese said no <laughs> and put his foot down. Uh, but apparently at some point, um, maybe after all the publicity for the show launch is over, um, HBO decided they had to move on. And and I don't know if there are hard feelings. I don't know if maybe Terrence Winter actually says, you know what, I'm just not doing it right and I, I'm not in love with this. I, that's probably unlikely. Um, it happens. Sometimes creators don't like the world they've created or don't like where they've gone. Um, but the, the thing is, you know, HBO low ratings do not necessarily equal death on HBO, right? HBO, well before Netflix established the model of the long tail, um, was all about sort of saying, you watch when you want to watch. It's okay as long as you keep paying us your 15 bucks a month subscription fee. So the ratings that we see every Monday and then the later ratings with Live 7s and everything else and the cumulative numbers they put out showing how many people watch via HBO Go, et cetera, et cetera, those really don't matter necessarily except, A, when they're as low as these ones were, uh, which is under a million viewers every Sunday in, in live viewership. And more importantly, the fact that the reviews were decidedly mixed and the buzz was decidedly negative. Now, it did have some good reviews. I think, Matt, yours was... I'm like the guy. I'm like the only person, <laughs> the only, the only person who enthusiastically <laughs> liked it and I still like the show. Joe, I think when you look at the golden age of HBO shows, you have like The Wire, The Sopranos, Deadwood, Six Feet Under, and none of these, like as you're saying, ratings didn't necessarily make all of these shows and they kind of had this indie cred to them and they were critical darlings. Do you think part of what made them go into triage mode with vinyls because they were looking for a hit on the level of Game of Thrones with it? Well, first of all, no, they're never Game of Thrones is an exception, right? And Sopranos was an exception. Those are the two big, massive monster hits. True Blood was very big early on, faded a little bit, but still was pretty big. I think vinyl, they sort of wanted a hybrid and they got neither. They didn't get the big reviews and they mm. didn't get the big ratings. They got nothing um, and nothing from nothing means nothing what what were the ratings <laughs> I, I think I'm, is that a billy paul song I it, that. you know in fact i was gonna i was about to start humming a melody and i'm glad that i didn't because no one will watch uh, listen to the rest of this podcast if that happens start a podcast of you and us singing <laughs> I, I tune in <laughs> although i was going to go back to the point you were talking about earlier i don't know if i would agree with you that the ratings don't ultimately matter that much to HBO because I, I think that's true in a sense, but The Sopranos, I think, changed that. What because, were the ratings uh, like for The Sopranos? Until Game of Thrones, they were the biggest, it was the biggest show on HBO. Now, that was in a day and age where we didn't have these cumulative Live Plus 7, Live Plus 30 VOD ratings. You could add in all these different things, but the Sunday numbers were absolutely huge. And they, I mean, in, in especially in the demographics. Again, I, I, you're right, Matt. HBO, I'm not trying to say ratings don't matter. But it was an but, ego thing i think it was an ego thing i think this idea of of and i i know this because you know like you i've been talking to people at hbo for like you know what 20 some years and now Sopranos changed everything right? and yeah. and i remember having conversations with them about this issue and saying like why why did you cancel this show why did you cancel that show and often one of the reasons would be ratings and i would say but I thought ratings didn't matter on HBO. And they're like, they don't. And I'm like, my mind is hurting. Explain. <laughs> I think it has to do with, you know, their ratings is sort of like in the same way Netflix has their mysterious model. They have a sense of what they need to be catering to to get people to continue to subscribe. They need to be in the conversation for Emmys. They need to get in the conversation for certain buzz. I mean, you know, that's why Girls is, Girls' ratings were strong in season one and immediately went off a cliff. Now, part of that is because everything in TV has been going down off a cliff over the last five years. So HBO takes that into account. But Girls' numbers are really small. Um, you know, Veep's numbers, 
numbers are not very good either. Silicon Valley's does well because it's behind Game of Thrones. Um, but th- I, I think it's about them sort of like this weird sort of amalgam of how much are people sort of watching? Are they consistently watching, you know, every week? And are people talking about it and writing about it and saying, you've got to watch this show? You know, I, 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 I think that vinyl is, is a show that should have worked. I mean, I am somebody, I said this in the story that I wrote. I, well, maybe I didn't say it, but I thought it. So I was writing it. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's, it's a show that had everything that I wanted in a show, right? I wanted, you know, 70s. I wanted rock and roll. I wanted Scorsese. I wanted winter. And, you know, to me, the single reason it didn't work is because it all felt cliched. I mean, right down to the point where there was a, you know, the establishing shot of the cocaine rush. Sort of like, really? We're going there right away? And I feel like that maybe doesn't work anymore. I don't know. Do you know. think people's tastes are changing partially? And that's, I mean, why did Boardwalk Empire, I feel like that pe- a lot more people loved Boardwalk Empire than they did. The, the ratings on that were not as great as HBO probably mm-hmm. hoped they would be, which is why that uh, season five was cut in half. Right. You know, that, it, was like, another... it was like a gesture of like respect to Terrence Winter and Scorsese and all those people. And it's just kind of like what they did with David Simon in season five of The Wire, which is also slightly truncated, and 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 Treme, uh, which I think they only gave him half a season for that. And um, HBO, it's weird. It's like they do respect the artist. They probably respect the artist more than a network might where they're constantly got their knives out and they're looking for a chance to cut the throat of any show that is not pulling its weight. But – Cable. I, I have noticed a, a ruthlessness in HBO that's taken root in the, in the post Sopranos era, where rather than like taking it out back and putting it down, they'll say like, "You got one more season, wrap it up." Yeah, but, but you know what? The Boardwalk Empire, though, Matt. In fairness, the Boardwalk Empire, they actually did. They, they they might have cut it short a little bit, but they did give it eight episodes as opposed to twelve. And and by the way, the numbers for Boardwalk Empire seem massive now. I mean, it it never got really barely below two million viewers for same day viewership, and I don't think vinyl has gotten above one million. By the way, definitely, Matt, you said this earlier about The Sopranos ruining it for HBO. I remember, I think Chris Albrecht has said this to me, or people said that Chris Albrecht has said this. Uh, he's the former HBO president who now runs Stars, uh, which is, you know, once we saw, got a taste of that big numbers and that big sort of publicity halo that came from it, we sort of got addicted to it. And plus, as I mentioned in the story, the competition for prestige drama has, you know, been upended since Mad Men. You know, they sort of proved at AMC that you didn't have to be HBO to have the greatest show on TV. Um, and now there are a lot of networks and streaming networks that are competing in that space and stealing away talent. And suddenly HBO, you know, it used to be agents told me that, you know, if you had the best idea and the best auteurs and, and people around it, the first stop was automatically going to be HBO if it was that level. Like there's HBO and everybody else. It's not TV, it's HBO. Well, now it's HBO, Netflix, um, it's still rarefied air. It's still HBO, Netflix, maybe Amazon, but even that's starting to change too. So I think HBO sort of having invested as much money as they have in vinyl just decided, you know what, this is not working. Viewers have rejected it. We need some way to try to get people back. And the only way they can hope for is to do what happened with the Leftovers season two where – it didn't work ratings-wise, but it certainly turned around the perception of Leftovers. I mean, even though I think, Matt, you and I love Leftovers from season one on, Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Although I thought season two was superior, but season one was pretty damn good. Do you think this has anything to do with how stories are being told in terms of raising stakes really early on 
the way Empire did, and this season people seem to not be responding to plot twists as much. It, it, no, with Empire, I think it was simply it just shot out like a rocket. It was it became a culture phantom. You you you. It's, I don't draw many lessons from Empire other than wow, that was big, quick. Actually, what's more happening is the way people view shows is changing. I think increasingly, you know, whereas maybe five years ago, just eighteen to twenty-four year olds were sort of just watching on Netflix or catching up. Now you're seeing a broader range of people realizing, oh, I kind of like that show i'll watch it on the off season i mean this is anecdotal there's no i don't have scientific evidence yet but i i you know you're seeing more and more people sort of catch up on shows weeks months and even years after i mean gray's anatomy is a show that still gets a whole base of new audience that comes into it years after the, the show began H abc's had recently on this um personal experience my mom just started watching game of thrones she's been through it on hbo go um and it will continue to build and i'll have no doubt that there are people who maybe are starting to watch breaking bad now having sort of caught on to better call saul and the fact is you know as the the, the ease with which people can sort of stream past seasons grows I, I think people say, like, unless the show absolutely insists that I watch it right now, unless there's such a reason that I must watch this now, like a Game of Thrones, uh, because you don't want to be lost out of the conversation, then I think it's more than likely than not that people will simply put off. So this is why networks are having to find new ways to sort of amortize costs and find new revenue streams and to realize that they need to own the stuff they, they make because they need to be able to, to, to profit off of, off of a long tail. Thank you so much for being with us, Joe. This was this fun. I feel so I feel so much smarter. Now. <laughs> oh. Well, yeah. Now we can just hope that HBO figures out a way to get me to watch Final again because I really want to <laughs> like that. <laughs> Matt and Nate, let's talk Game of Thrones. Okay, let's get into it, <laughs> so, Giselle. So we've, we have, let's start from the beginning. Okay. Jon Snow looks very dead. He's very dead. <laughs> Jon Snow is... In the snow. He's 100% dead. Uh, what, For now. What are some ways he could potentially not be dead, Nate? Well, there are, I've spent nine months telling all of my friends all the, all the theories of all the ways that he could come back. Um, the biggest one is uh, the presence of Melisandre. Um, who, as we all know, is back at Castle Black, back at the wall, kind of hanging out. And she is, she's a red priestess. If we remember from season three, Thoros of Mir, people who follow the Lord of Light, the priests of that religion, have the power to bring dead bodies back uh, just by kissing them. So hmm. it's a sort of weird sort of fire magic, and you can sort of bring a corpse back to life. They're not exactly the way they were before. They okay. sort of, the more times it happens, the more you lose your memories, you sort of lose touch with your past self, you eventually become, I don't want to say a zombie because this show has actual zombies on it. Right. So we should, you know, bear in mind the difference, but you sort of become like a walking ghost. So. Yeah. But speaking of ghosts, the other theory is that Jon Snow had a psychic connection to his wolf ghost. Ghost. And that if you are a person who has that sort of psychic connection, when your human body dies, your mind sort of floats into the body of your animal and your consciousnesses sort of slowly merge. 
Um, and we, we also saw this in season three a little bit. Um, if you remember Orel the Wildling, played by the guy from the British office, he was killed at the very end of season three, and he had that, uh, the hawk. And after he was killed, his hawk sort of immediately attacked John. Um, which was sort of a hint that maybe ah. his right, right, right. Mm-hmm. So the animal's just saving it for later, saving saving the soul for later. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. It's sort of like I haven't read yes. the books, obviously. Yes, so. the uh, the animal the animal consciousness eventually sort of you could say subsumes the human oh, consciousness, okay. and they become kind of one oh. together. And so then the question is, if as many people believe, John's consciousness is currently in ghost. The question then becomes how much of his wolf consciousness will come back with him if Melisandre gives him the kiss of fire. Ooh. I, I like this. This is like way more interesting than I had expected it to be in terms of like the possibilities for what Jon Snow's character could become. And of course, now that you've told yeah. me that, I'm, yeah. se- I'm secretly going to hold out hope that we'll get some dog voiceover. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think we will. I think, I think, we, I think we interviewed <laughs> the guy who played Sam Tarly. To sort of try and pin him down and get him to admit that John would come back. And obviously he was very well media trained, so he didn't say that. But he did. That was his argument against the wolf theory was that it would just be Kit Harrington's voice with a dog. And it would, and it would be very silly. <laughs> be and a very different show. Yes, it would be a very different show. <laughs> Squirrel! Than it currently is. Uh, yeah. And so, and, but so because of that theory, a lot of book fans, every time Ghost is on screen until the day John hypothetically comes back, they're going to be examining Ghost very, mm. very closely to sort of see if there's hints that he's in there. I am curious, Nate, as a book reader, you know, this season is the first where a significant amount of it seems to be going off book. I don't read the book, so I have no sense of what is or isn't off book. But you you were saying how in this premiere, nothing was from the book. They've, they've kind of run out yes. of rail, haven't yeah, they? Yeah. Um, you know, there is still material that they haven't, gotten to that judging from the previews from the season it looks like they were sort of double back and cover Mm -hmm. but yes from tonight at least all the plot lines that we saw were plot lines that had sort of yeah was them sort of blazing their own trail apart from uh george martin's books and how does that feel as a as a book reader do you do you feel like it still has felt true to the spirit of the book just Uh, generally i mean uh i like many people i started uh, I started reading the books between seasons one and two, so uh, it feels more like season one again in a way mm-hmm. that it's, you know, I'm watching these scenes and I'm not, I don't have that like tiny, terrible voice in my head saying, oh, well, that's different. Oh, well, that's different. Right. Which, you you know, you generally want to shut down. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it's kind of fun not knowing what's going to happen in every episode. I wonder if, uh, how that's going to change people's reactions, people who read the books as they watch it, and also what that, what is that going to do in the event that George R. R. Martin eventually does finish this series, it's going to be like everything's a surprise now. Well, they've also said that you know the the show could spoil the books because a lot of what we're seeing could potentially be stuff that they've talked to George R. R. Martin about that are in his drafts for books that haven't been published yet. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, so, uh, that's a good that's a good way of putting it. I think a good example would be the Melisandre reveal from the end of mm-hmm. last night. Um, there have been hints throughout the books and throughout the show, I think, that Melisandre was not entirely what she seemed. As what, what, were yes. the, what were the, some of those hints? Uh, there, were, there were hints that she didn't really need to eat or sleep. Um, and there, were, there was a reference to her childhood that seemed, just the way that it was written, seemed like it took place, you know, not decades ago, but maybe centuries ago. Mm-hmm. And there was a reference to the fact that she had been a slave, and so her face had been tattooed. 
And obviously her the face that we see doesn't have any tattoos. So that was the thing that people had sort of thought was maybe true and then it was confirmed last night. Um, and I think that's sort of the way that a lot of these things will be handled is it's, you know, an idea that had been sort of, you know, bounced around the fandom, you know, and people, it wasn't taken canonically or anything, but people, yeah, you know, it might be true. It might be all right. Uh, and then, yeah, the show gets to it. And I don't think people are mad about that by any means. It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Right. It happened. Yeah. But I think pro- maybe with some things we'll start to see people maybe yeah. not having yeah. as much of a laid back attitude about it as you do. <laughs> and well, it dep- I mean, there are, there are a lot of, there are a lot of book fans that uh, generally do not like the show and, and, you know, call it basically just expensive fan fiction. A lot of people don't like changes. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't want to cast a broad brush. I think some of their critiques are accurate. Some of them are not, uh, you know, certainly when it comes to the Dorn storyline, I think even people who don't read the books agree that that's just a misfire. Right, so the Dorn storyline is the Sand Snakes. Yes. Um, and, you know, a lot of people got upset about this on Twitter after the episode aired. And it does feel kind of like, you know, we have so many plot lines going on on the show. Who cares about these people when we have all these main characters to care about? Yeah, the thing with the Sand Snakes is they're just they're just kind of a misfire on all levels, right? They're not very interesting they don't really have any interiority. Mm-hmm. The only thing that defines them is they have different weapons, you know, which is like, you know, it's very Ninja Turtles. Uh, <laughs> but at least the Ninja Turtles, like, even wore different colors. Right. So right, you can right. sort of keep them apart. The Sand Snakes all wear the same outfit. Uh, yeah, and it's just very unclear how it connects to everything else, you know, not only on a plot level, but sort of thematically, right? It's it's just mm-hmm. kind of a, it's a little bit of a mess. It's Their only defining characteristic at this point is that sort of they like violence. And anybody who they don't like, they're going to kill. I guess it does carry on this thread that we've seen building and definitely was established more in the premiere of Powerful Woman. So, but I don't know that we necessarily need more. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, they have the whole, like, weak men will not rule Dorn. Yeah, no, it it definitely feels like, I don't know if you've seen the comic, but uh, there's a cartoonist named Kate Beaton who has this series called Strong Female Characters. Mm -hmm. And they're just, like, these ridiculous women wearing just like skimpy clothes who just like do violent things and then like say like weird parodic feminist anthems you know they say like girl power and kick you know a policeman and then like shake their butt um, <laughs> you know and, it, and it's a parody it's of this accurate. it's a parody of this trend that we've seen you know in the past few years that pops up where it's you know you want to sort of pay lip service to you know feminist themes but you also sort of don't have the time or inclination to create actually interesting female characters. And so that's sort of what happens is you get sort of right. like scantily clad women, but it's like, oh, but they're strong female characters because they can fight. Yeah, so it's the worst of everything. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I don't want to say the worst. <laughs> Things can worst always get worse. Of, worst but, of everything. But yeah, but, it, you know, it's a thing that... <laughs> it's a thing that happens. Yeah, it's a thing that happens. You know, and I think I think you do see other examples of female strength that are handled much better in the show, right? I think, right. I think Brienne's character is much more interesting... I think Sansa's character is much more interesting. Arya's character, even Cersei, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I, I thought all of those characters were the were the most interesting parts of the premiere. Yeah, the Brienne, uh, hands down. Brienne and Sansa. That was by far my favorite scene of this episode, and yeah. that's something I really want to see more of on the show. Is this sense of friendship and bonding in dark times, which mm-hmm. is something I love about Harry Potter. And just the sense of people who need each other, but they also deeply care about one another. And I would really love to see the storyline develop into something like that. Was it my imagination or did this episode feel less 
kind of oppressively gloomy and cruel than the Game of Thrones usual. Not that they won't get yeah, back I to mean, that yeah, I mean, even Ramsey, They even gave Ramsey Bolton a nice little human moment yeah. a little bit, and they turned it around because he's Ramsey Bolton and made him still terrible. But, yeah, no, I uh, I sort of agree. I think it helped that a lot of the storylines that were sort of mired in the muck have come to an end, if you think about it, right? Uh, Theon is no longer with Ramsey, so he can yeah. sort of do more interesting things. Uh, Daenerys is no longer in Marine. And so you don't have all those scenes of just the guys in the masks stabbing random people. I mean, you've, you've got her now. <laughs> right. You've got her now among the Dothraki, which is still sort of the same thing. But even then, they sort of leavened it with that little Monty Python humor bit, yeah, which mm-hmm. I thought was kind of funny. I mean, I I think last season was such a slog in a lot of ways mm-hmm. that it's nice to come out of it with a little more lightness yeah. and feeling hopefulness mm-hmm. and. I do feel like I wonder how people will respond to it because this show has become so tied to its brutality, you know, yeah. and, mm-hmm. you know, Theon becoming Reek. Was that season four? Uh, was, that was season three season where he three. was chained to the wood. Yeah. Basically. You know, yeah, you have your red wedding scenes like so much. So much of the show has been like tied to this darkness that like how are they going to handle the lightness is what I'm really curious to see how they do like tonally it feels like it's going to become somewhat of a different show I mean they have done uplift before I'm thinking of the the season four finale right if you remember that ended with Arya who sort of had also been a part of these very terrible gloomy storylines and with her getting on the boat to Bravos, and um, the last shot was her sort of like looking over the ocean very positive. And I thought that was a that was a nice <laughs> moment. And they have intermittently had moments yeah. like that. You know, if you think of the end of season one where, you know, Rob Stark gets called the king of the north, the king of the north. Yeah, um, that's great. Although I, I just feel I, I always feel like it's less uh, lightness or happiness, but rather the absence of suffering, like uh-huh. the momentary absence <laughs> of suffering. Right. And, it's very and, and of you. yeah, well, you know, but it's Game of Thrones, and you know, it's a, and a kingdom has been thrown into disarray, and all sorts of treacherous people are jockeying to either grab a piece of what's left or, or maneuver themselves into a position where they can be sort of the ruler of a lesson realm. Mm-hmm. And that's dark. It is, You know, yeah. it's just dark. It's like, you know, they took the final scene in The Empire Strikes Back and decided to make a show out of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like uh-huh. you're constantly on the verge of all hope being lost for one character or another and sometimes a bunch of them at the same time. Yeah, and well, the hope is, you know, then after, after that darkness, then you come out into the light and that makes the light uh, more sweeter. I think that's probably what mm-hmm. George R. R. Martin would say. So now we're going to shift gears a bit to talk about Better Call Saul. Uh, Matt, I understand you went to New Jersey to to talk with Alan Sevenwall about Well, this. actually, I, I haven't been there yet, but I'm about to go there uh, by casting a spell uh, with an incantation directed at the Lord of Light. So here <laughs> we go. And presto, changeo, through the magic of audio, here we are in New Jersey at the home of my friend Alan Sevenwall, who I've known for <coughs> years, <laughs> um, <laughs> to talk about Better Call Saul and maybe some uh, issues related to that kind of show. Alan, thank you for welcoming me into your lovely abode. Uh, anytime, and as always, I apologize for the mess. Thank you, thank you. That's the that's going to be the title of my memoir, so we're good. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Better Call Saul, uh, just came to a close and I know that you are as big a fan of it as I am. And you also have some thoughts about its relationship to its predecessor. And I thought we could talk about that. And, the, and I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, 
the question of the unlikable protagonist, like what is it, what did that used to mean? What does it mean now? And, and how does it relate to this show for you? Well, I mean, you know, once upon a time, there was, there's the famous scene in Network where, where uh, Conchata Farrell is the development executive and she goes to Faye Dunaway and she rattles off the list of this year's potential pilots and every single one of the protagonists is described as crusty but benign. <laughs> and so that was the thing. It was like, you could maybe say a few aggressive things, but ultimately people had to understand that you were good at heart. And I think, you know, Sipowitz, and certainly by the time you got to Tony Soprano... That went away, and so now we're in. The, we've been in the age of the antihero for almost twenty years now. Good lord! Yeah, um, yeah, we have, and and I guess as you've as you've been really, really pretty uh, diligent about pointing out, Oz really got this going. Yeah, Oz like in a really big way to the to the extent where major characters on that show were murderers, rapists, arsonists, you know, cult leaders. No, and the people who worked in the prison were often less likable than them. That was yes. the amazing thing about the show was it made you empathize more with the killers than it did with the warden and the prison guard and the therapist. And, you know, Sister Pete was pretty great, though. So yes, I will yes. give her that. Well, Crusty But Benign is a fun... That's a fun put-down, and it's really accurate to the kind of shows that were on TV in the 70s and, and the 80s and a little bit beyond that. But... I feel like there's always a core of likability to these unlikable characters. I thought Tony, I don't know if it was mainly because of Gandolfini, but there may have been something in the writing as well. Tony Soprano, I thought, was likable. I think there's a difference between a movie with uh, an aggressively unlikable protagonist and a TV show. Mm. Like, I will gladly watch, you know, Whiplash, something like that. I will gladly watch 90 minutes, two hours of just people who are complete asses and, you know, and be enthralled. But if you're asking me to sort of come back week after week, year after year and do it, that's a tougher ask. And that's why one of the things that's interesting about both The Sopranos and the show that gave birth to Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad, is that those characters started off as maybe not always sympathetic, but as you say, kind of likable. Like, you could un- mm-hmm. you could understand where Tony was coming from, you could certainly understand where Walt was coming from, and they didn't really get revealed as absolute monsters until we were too deep to get out. Right, they did, they did gradually dole that out. And I loved Breaking Bad for how it gave you this character whose motives were quite understandable, and so understandable that people, a lot of people, really thought he was their hero. Even he now, I, I, even now, I refer to Walt as a villain, and I get a lot of incredulous reaction. Oh yeah, people get angry. People are there. Are, it's it's young dudes mostly. I've noticed they they love Walter in the way they love Batman. They fucking love Batman. Batman's like a, <laughs> Batman is like a god to them. Yeah, and Walter White is like a god to them. And if you say anything against Walter White, you're criticizing their god. It's I'm not. It's like a couple of notches below that. I'm not exaggerating that much. Yeah, and that's why Skyler is the nagging bitch, and and you know everybody else who stands in Walt's way is basically a villain. And I thought it was funny that people always referred to the antagonists of Walter White as the villains. Like, Gus Fring is the villain. And, and Gus is not a good guy four. either, but, like... He's not a good guy either, but he's, like... I always found his keen judgment, his cool head, and his fastidiousness more appealing overall. Than yeah, no, there's a, there's a period in season four where literally I started sympathizing with Gus and rooting for him to beat Walt, even though I knew that was never going to happen. Right. Because Walt was really insufferable by that point. Oh, he was. And, and one of the fascinating things about Walter White... And Tony Soprano, and a lot of these characters, is the way that it seems like the show itself is trying to see what they have to do to make you not like them. Yeah. You know, like, they keep escalating. Like, with, like I, I remember even talking to David Chase about this around 
after season two, which you know, had Tony and the gang behaving considerably more unlikably than season one, and they, the whole season builds to the point where they kill one of their own guys. Yeah. And then there are a lot of other really nasty things that happened that season. That's when I felt the escalations beginning, and they did the, they did something like that with Walt. And I feel like even though it's an altogether gentler show, they're doing something like that with Better Call Saul. It's interesting though, because like I, I was very skeptical of the show before it debuted, despite having huge trust in Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould. Yeah, because Saul was a not unentertaining part of Breaking Bad, but he was never even close to my favorite part of it. He he seemed kind of a thin character. He was comic relief, and yet. Other characters on the show generally made me laugh more than he did, so right. I like these writers. I like Bob Odenkirk. I like the idea that Banks was going to be in it, too, but I said, like, what? Well, how is this going to be a thing? And then they miraculously made it so that Jimmy is among the more likable characters in the Breaking Bad universe, and now in this season, Kim has turned out to be perhaps the most likable character in the entire Breaking Bad universe. She is, the mo- uh, she is I would say, all Taylor the most likable character, but... She's compromised as well. No, she's absolutely. Made, she's made a deal. She's made a deal with the devil. He's a very likable, sweet devil. Yes, but she's literally in bed with Saul. Yeah, no, Saul you know. is. He's not without sin, and he's going to bring her down. And everybody knows that this is going to end badly because he runs off to Omaha to become Cinnabon Jean by himself. So right, right. she's not with him at the end. There, no, she's not, and his brother's not with him in the end. <sighs> you know, shock. Chuck. Speaking of unlikable, that's a, that's an amazing turn because he went from sort of the somewhat sympathetic crazy brother to everybody who watches this show hates him I, so okay, much well, now. I love Chuck, and I don't just mean I love him as a character. I I I, I actually like him. I think he's you know he's an asshole. <laughs> he, he's somebody who who on a, a medical show would be said to have no bedside manner. You know, like Carrie Weaver on ER reminds me a little bit of Chuck. Yeah, you know, though Carrie Weaver would show up on ER, a hospital administrator, and she was the person that people, the other characters, always had to go through if they wanted to like fudge a, a, an insurance form to get something covered that wouldn't normally be covered, or they want to do a heart transplant to save a child and they and they can't get approval, and she and they want to go around it, and she's always the person who says, "Don't do that." We're going to get sued. Or don't do that. We'll lose our state accreditation. Don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't do it. That's what she was there to, to do was to put the brakes on. People would complain about her. Yep. They, the, the, she was such a drag. She was such a drip. They found her annoying. But a lot of it was because she was standing in the way of Juliana Margulies and George Clooney yep. and Anthony Edwards when they wanted to, like, you know, transplant the baboon heart into the little girl or whatever they needed to do that week. You know? yep. and, so, and that was why they hated Skylar. And, and I think that's also why people hate Chuck so much. Chuck speaks the truth no, a lot of the time. No, and that's the thing. is That's what I thought found was so impressive about the finale. And I'm, I fall somewhere in the middle. Like, I don't despise him, but he's obviously an asshole and he's pushing Jimmy towards becoming Saul. But at the same time, like, he's right about everything. He's yeah. right about everything Jimmy has done. Yes. He's right that Jimmy's going down the slippery slope. And, like, because of Jimmy, he's now going through this horrific ordeal at the hospital, which Vince Gilligan shot friggin' upside down, and amazingly. Yeah, it was great. And, like, I'm feeling so... T- I'm feeling doubly terrible for him both because I know it's painful and because I know this is entirely Jimmy's fault. So... Well, I got a little bit of pushback when I discussed this online um, from people who said... Yes, uh, Chuck is an interesting character psychologically, but I hate him because he's an asshole. But also, and this is significant, a lot of people said this, because he's not coming from a place of love. 
he's motivated by jealousy. He's motivated by pettiness, and like he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a heart. I don't think that's really true. Yeah. But there is something heartless about the way he often goes about what he does. Um, and there seemed to be a consensus among these people that Jimmy was altogether more preferable than Chuck because Jimmy meant well, which is sort of what people said about Walt, in a way. Like, he's just doing it for his family and so yeah. forth. But here's the thing. I don't want my lawyer to have heart. Yep. I don't want my doctor to have heart. I don't want them to be a good person. I don't want them to be somebody I can have a beer with. I want them to do their fucking job and not break the law and get me in trouble and steal my money and do yep. all that other stuff that people are afraid that a professional is going to do to you when you don't know as much as they do. Yep. And Jimmy is bad news. And I love Jimmy. Yeah. But like Jimmy, I just I really feel like Jimmy does the wrong thing for the right reasons and Chuck does the right thing for the wrong reasons. But ultimately, it's Chuck who's doing the right thing. If you really look at this show in a clear-eyed way... It's hard to really root for anyone. It's like I want the characters to be happy, but that's not the same thing as rooting for anybody to win. But but, there, but there's also I mean. a couple things going on, which is with Jimmy and with Mike, we know where it's going. Like there's yeah. no it's it's the, that's where the show is bound by the prequelitis with Kim and with Chuck and I guess with Howard, who is a bit less relevant at this point. They could do anything with them. Right, right. That's interesting. But back to Chuck for a second. I had this realization uh, on the train on the way over here. Um, Chuck is the Frank Grimes of <laughs> of the Breaking Bad Better Call Saul universe. He is oh, Frank Grimes. Grimes. He is Frank Grimes, and 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 uh, uh, Jimmy is uh, is Homer. And he's you know he's he's doing everything wrong. He's doing everything brazenly, aggressively wrong, violating every principle, every kind of decency there is, and succeeding. He, he, his shamelessness is what able, enables him to succeed. And meanwhile, here's Chuck. He really, truly cares about his clients. You know, he is he's abusive to people lower on the on the totem pole, uh, and he's generally just a dick. <laughs> but he cares about it. I believe that he really, truly cares about his clients. He, think, he thinks the law matters, and doing right by the law matters. You know, if you uh, uh, if he was moving out of an apartment. Not only would he clean the place and plaster all the holes, he'd be down on the to- on the tile with a toothbrush in the bathroom. Yep. Like, that's how much Chuck cares about what he does. Let's talk about this idea of prequelitis. This is an interesting one. Um, what do you think that does to a show when they decide to be a prequel? What con- what constraints is that place on the writers? It's I mean, it's tricky because what's it's basically two shows in one. There's the Mike show, which is very much at the moment the Breaking Bad prequel, because he's got the Salamancas, he's got Lawson, he's got sort of all of these various colorful Breaking Bad characters, and you know exactly the path that's going on, and that whether or not Gus himself left that note, Mike is going to start working for Gus soon, and there's... Like, there, there's just things that are unavoidable. Right. Jimmy, it's unavoidable, too, and that he's eventually going to become Saul Goodman and go work in the strip mall. But for the moment, at least, that show feels so completely independent of Breaking Bad that I feel like they could run for a number of years without... By that show, do you mean the legal show or... The, the legal show. The, yeah. The Jimmy McGill, elder care lawyer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I like that he's actually... You know, he he, may, he he says it sarcastically, but he kind of is turning into Matlock. Yes. You know, <laughs> he's turning into young Matlock in these crazy, you know, Damon Runyon suits. I would just I I love would, his suits. I would love a parallel world where Breaking Bad didn't exist and Gilligan and Gould going to pitch this show as not a prequel, but it just, yeah, here's the story about a con man who decides to go straight by becoming an elder care lawyer. Hello? <laughs> 
we'll see ourselves out. Thank you. Is this thing on? Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, that's my, my, one of my favorite anecdotes in TV development history is David Milch. <laughs> David Milch pitching a show set in ancient Rome, and he gets to the end of this long pitch, and the, and the people in the room, the executives in the room say, that sounds wonderful, but the problem is we've already got a show in development set in ancient Rome. Yeah. And there's a and I said to David Milton, "What did you say?" He said, "Did I say Rome?" <laughs> I, just, I always like to picture that conversation as being like in the Holy Grail when they go to the French the French castle and they're like, "Ah, oh, we already got one." <laughs> oh God. Uh, does does the fact that a, that a prequel that you know where Mike's story and Jimmy slash Saul's story is going, in a way, doesn't it make that show a tragedy? I feel like it makes the show a no, tragedy. No, it's absolutely by a tragedy because like I'm watching Jimmy right now and I'm liking him so much more than I ever expected to. But I know that like he's going to get worse and worse. And you know, the guy who would run into the copy shop to save his brother, even at personal risk to himself. Yeah. I don't know that Saul Goodman does that. I don't believe... Yeah, that guy's gone. By the time we, by, by the time he's called Saul... Yeah, I mean, the first time we meet him, he's, he's basically trying to talk Walt and Jesse into murdering Badger. Right. Right. So... Yeah. It's very sad. So we're seeing, like, the inevitable decline. However, and I'm certainly not the first person to raise this possibility, um, don't you think there's a shot that we might end this show in the present? We could. I mean, the, there's, there's a whole bunch of things they could do. It could certainly just end with... You know, Walt and Jesse walking into his office and you have like a quick cameo from Cranston and Paul or CGI'd or something. They could also do the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern season where it's, this is what Saul and Jimmy and Mike were up to during the Breaking Bad years. I don't think that's a great dramatic thing because I think too much of the, you could maybe do an episode of that. I don't think you could do a season. Yeah, no, I don't think so too. That sounds almost like interstitial material they would release to the the internet or something. Certainly I feel like you could do something with him in Omaha. And the fact that he is not far from where Kim came from originally, hmm. I feel like that can't be a coincidence. Hmm, I hadn't thought of that. Well, you know, he's reasonably close to um, to Wichita, which is where Pete Campbell on Mad Men eventually ends up. <laughs> so maybe we could get if we could get Pete Campbell back with some old age, very age old makeup age makeup, on, yeah, uh, and and then we can have a little cross midwestern shenanigans happening. <laughs> And they can become a shared universe, and we can have some fan theories. Because yeah. I know we both love fan theories so much. You're, they're your favorite thing in all the world, aren't they, Matt? <laughs> and on that note, thanks, Alan. Anytime, Matt. Thanks for having me. Well, you had me. It's your house. But I'm bump. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellevent. I'm Matt Zoller Sites and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. I'm Nate Jones, and you can find me on Twitter at at KN8. Thanks for listening.